Before we start this video, I just want to give a quick shout out to a couple of channels that I love. Firstly, I want to draw attention to History with Hilbert. As far as I'm concerned, this guy is a real heavyweight of the History YouTube world, and he's been here since the very beginning of History Time, back in 2017, commenting on my videos back when I had less than 100 subscribers. All round great guy, with fascinating and varied videos on all sorts of topics, including a comprehensive selection on Vikings and Anglo-Saxons. Go and subscribe now if you haven't already. Secondly, we have Useful Charts. This is a really unique channel from a guy who is an expert in family trees and timelines. I don't know any other channels quite like this one. His work really complements other channels out there and can give you a really in-depth knowledge of world history by going deep on royal family trees. So go and subscribe now if you haven't already. And also check out his charts and timelines. He ships worldwide. I have some myself and they are amazing. Now, without further ado, back to the video. Of all the skirmishes, raids, wars and conflicts of Britain's early Middle Ages, one alone is consistently cited as the most important of the age. In fact, it dwarfs all of the others in its sheer scale, its scope and its perceived importance at the time. Still referred to simply as the Great War in the decades that followed. For centuries to come, Brunnenburg was seen as the very moment in which Englishness was born. In the year 937, upon that bloody field, somewhere in the north of England, a mighty coalition of Norsemen, Scots and Britons did battle against the full force of the newly forged Kingdom of England. Led by its triumphant king, an emperor in all but name, Athelstan, the grandson of Alfred the Great and successor to his legacy of a unified Anglerland. Magnates and commoners alike from all corners of the realm marched side by side that day for the first time in history. Kentish men from the southern shores, Danish-infused East Anglians from the marshy lowlands of the east, proud Mercians from the Midlands, successors to the legacy of Offa the Great, fierce half-pagan warrior lords from Jorvik, descendants of the great heathen army, and hardy Bernician holdouts from north of the Wall, successors to the great 7th century kings Oswald and Edgefrith, lords of war who had pushed the Britons back east across the Pennines centuries before. United by language, and now finally a gradually coalescing common culture, these men now stood against the other nations and peoples of Britain and Ireland. Of course, at the very centre of the force stood the men who had brought all these disparate peoples together under one banner. Veteran Viking fighters whose might was forged in the dark days of the late 9th century, when they had stood alone against an onslaught of Vikings from across the sea. The men of Wessex.
On the other side of the field, the Scots were led by their veteran king, Constantine II, a living relic from that now long-gone age of Viking invasion from Scandinavia. Alongside them stood an even older people, the men of Strathclyde, led by their king, Owain. They were the last remnants of the Old North kingdoms who had once held firm against the likes of Oswald and Edgefrith in the dark days of the 7th century. Yet neither of these men, nor any of the English force, were the instigators of the battle. That distinction lay with another, a lone warrior with the power and the ruthlessness to match Athelstan. Perhaps the greatest unifier of them all, and certainly the most powerful Viking warlord in all of Britain and Ireland during this age. Yet, unlike the great West Saxon ruler, this Viking sea king achieved his feats with few foundations laid out for him, as Alfred and Edward had done for Athelstan. He was called King of the Danes by some, and King of the Fair Foreigners and the Dark Foreigners by others, a title signifying overlordship over all of the Scandinavians of Ireland and the Irish Sea. But for most of his life, he was known by another title too, one that existed in flagrant opposition to the newly ascendant English ruler. He was known as King of Northumbria. We know him as Olaf Guthfridsson, a pagan, resolute follower of the old ways, and for close to a decade during the early 10th century, the dragon-headed prowls of his war vessels remained a near-fatal threat to the burgeoning nation of England. As with most Norsemen in Britain during this time, very little is known of Olaf's youth before he made a name for himself. According to legend, like his father Guthrith before him, and his kinsmen Ragnall and Sitrick, Olaf was a great-grandson of Ivar the Boneless, leader of the Great Heathen Army and co-founder of the Uyamere dynasty of Ireland. By 902, the warriors who had made up that army were mostly dead and a coalition of Irish kings had thrown out the Scandinavians from the port city of Dublin, scattering them onto the high seas. In 914, however, led by the brothers Citric and Ragnall, they returned, inflicting a brutal mass regicide upon a coalition of Irish kings by the end of the decade. Yet, Viking rule in Ireland was ever precarious relegated to a scattering of largely independent longforts along the coastal rivers, the first towns of Ireland. Though the Irish had been subdued for now, if a unifying king such as Flan Sinner again arose, all of the hard work could be undone. Both Ragnall and Citric recognised this fact, launching successful ventures to expand their rule across the sea to the rich and fertile land of Northumbria. Likely using the already existing Norse settlements on the west coast as a stepping stone to the city of Jorvik, 
now leaderless after their defeat by Edward the Elder at Tettenhall in 910. First, Ragnall made the crossing, defeating a Benician Scottish coalition to seize the city of Jorvik, followed by his brother Citric upon his death. The man left behind in Dublin to keep hold of their city was their kinsman, Guthfrith. By the late 920s, as Citric waged political battles with Edward the Elder and his son Athelstan to keep control of Northumbria, scant references are made in the Irish sources to a son of Guthfrith, raiding Irish monasteries and settlements. And although this warlord is not named, it seems probable especially given his swift rise to the throne upon the death of his father in 934, that this was Olaf. This was a time of martial prowess in and around the lands ruled by Scandinavians, when only the strongest survived. Just a handful of years before, in 902, the Vikings of Dublin had been cast out of Ireland and it seems likely that Olaf was born during this period of exile. During his youth, war still raged not only between the Irish and the Dublin Norse, but also between the Dublin Norse and the other Norsemen in Ireland, such as those at Limerick and Waterford, let alone across the Channel with the various kingdoms of Britain. The first definitive mention of Olaf in contemporary sources is in 933, when several Irish annals describe him mercilessly plundering Armagh in November of that year, carrying off large amounts of plunder and slaves back to Dublin. Further raids were carried out during this time, some in conjunction with local Irish kings, and some which led to bitterly contested battles where hundreds died. By 934, Olaf became the new king in Dublin after the death of his father, suggesting that he was by then the strongest candidate for rule. More raids continued throughout this time as Olaf amassed more and more wealth and fortune. Like his father before him, he had his designs on Northumbria, but not before he had brought all of Ireland under his control. A feat never achieved by any of his predecessors. Finally, in early 937, war came to the other apex Viking power in Ireland, Limerick, generally thought to have rivalled Dublin in power and size during the 920s and 930s. With frost still on the ground, long before the usual campaigning season, the men of Dublin rode to war. Next to no information exists on the battle, but by day's end, according to the Irish sources, Olaf succeeded in breaking the ships of the King of Limerick, also named Olaf, and capturing him alive, bringing him back to Dublin in chains, perhaps to be held as hostage to ensure the good behaviour of his kinsmen. For Olaf had not gone to Limerick that day to destroy the power of the other city. He had gone to enlarge his own host. He was amassing a fleet 
and an army of men to sail it, and he needed the ships and the warriors of Limerick. If the contemporary sources are to be believed, his was to be the greatest fleet seen in this part of the world since the days of the Romans. This period is usually considered by historians to be the high point of Scandinavian influence in Ireland. Now that Limerick was subject to his rule, Olaf could legitimately call himself the ruler of all the Norsemen and Danes in Ireland, and very possibly could call on the largest Viking army and fleet ever yet seen in the British Isles. Olaf was not content to rule on one island, however. Both his father and his uncles had all ruled as kings over the Irish Sea in Northumbria during their lifetimes. And Olaf sought to live up to their legacies by reclaiming these lands for himself. Indeed, Northumbria had long remained under Scandinavian control by this point, and was still heavily infused with its culture since the time of the Great Heathen Army of the 860s. Upon Citric's death in 927, however, and a failed power grab by Guthfrith, Northumbria had been swallowed up by the newly forged nation of England and its new king, Athelstan. By the mid-930s, Olaf was not alone in his resentment at the growing power of England. Constantine, the king of the Scottish Kingdom of Alba, had himself seen his lands invaded in 934 and been forced to submit to Athelstan's overlordship, as had Owen of Strathclyde. By 937, the three kings decided to make a common cause against England, solidifying the alliance with a marriage between Olaf and one of Constantine's daughters. Together, they secretly planned a full-scale invasion of Northumbria in an as yet unknown location where they would attempt to break Athelstan's power once and for all. No sooner had Limerick been subjugated into the Kingdom of Dublin did Olaf load up his mighty fleet of longships with his army, now bolstered by the men of every Scandinavian settlement on the island, and likely throughout the Irish Sea and the Hebrides too, ever attracted by the allure of plunder and wealth. According to the Anglo-Saxon records, some 600 ships sailed that year. By October, later than the usual campaigning season, this mighty force headed across the Irish Sea to wage war against England for supremacy in Britain. Neither Olaf nor Constantine could have anticipated the incredibly swift response from Athelstan, whose power was so great that he managed to raise a substantial force from all corners of his kingdom. Even after the traditional campaigning season was over, and most men of the fjord had gone back to their homes to till their fields.
although the location of Brunenburg has never been conclusively found, it has long been regarded as the greatest and most significant battle of the era. The political reality of the situation was that if Olaf emerged victorious, he would gain Northumbria. Constantine and Owen would reassert their independence once and for all from England. And Athelstan, if he lived, would rule over a rump of his former kingdom. As it happened, after an intense and brutal battle, described in numerous near-contemporary sources, including an epic poem in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, Athelstan emerged victorious, thus laying the foundations for the eventual domination which England would establish over the rest of Britain in the coming decades and centuries. Though defeated, Olaf survived the battle and travelled back across the sea to Dublin with the remnants of his fleet. Significant remnants there must have been, for within a matter of months he was active again in the Irish Midlands, carrying out a raid on Kilcullen where he is said to have taken a thousand prisoners. Perhaps the men of Limerick or the Hebrides had taken the brunt of the English shield wall at Brunanburh. Perhaps it was Constantine. Though few details remain, Olaf seems to have remained as war-hungry as ever. And by October 939, as chance would have it, Athelstan was dead. In the absence of his strong rule, along with the personal oaths of loyalty made to him by the lords of the Danelaw, Northumbria fell back into the hands of local Scandinavian magnates. As far as they were concerned, very much only willing to submit to one stronger than themselves, only one candidate remained for their allegiance. Within weeks, in preference to Athelstan's teenage half-brother Edmund, they proclaimed Olaf as their new king. Triumphantly heading back over the Irish Sea, leaving his brother Black Air in control of the Norse settlements in Ireland, Olaf settled in to rule over his northern sea empire. But he wasn't finished yet. In the early Middle Ages, the period after the death of a king was always unstable and fraught with danger. And for the Anglo-Saxons, Christian now, Though still very much embedded in the Germanic warrior culture of their ancestors, this was even more so the case. Just as Edmund struggled to hold together the South against independent-minded Mercians and East Anglians, Olaf rode out deep into the heartlands of the still heavily Scandinavian Five Boroughs. There at Leicester, According to the English chronicler Simeon of Durham, the two kings met, and begrudgingly, Edmund agreed to formally cede control of all English lands north of the Humber to the Viking king. Yet, wily as ever, Olaf must have spotted weakness that day, for within a matter of weeks, he gathered his men and again marched to war. By 940, faced with the united power of Northumbria and Ireland, and the relatively weak state of the Anglo-Saxons to their south, the various magnates and power brokers of the five boroughs 
pledged their allegiance to Olaf. England was collapsing. Though the details remain lost to us today, the important fortified market towns of Derby, Leicester, Lincoln, Nottingham and Stamford all fell to Olaf's ever-growing empire. And he wasn't finished. In 941, the Chronicle of Melrose records a raid on the ancient Anglian church at Tyningham, in what was then Bernicia, the northern part of Northumbria. This tiny hint at Olaf's activities may represent an attempt to cement the overland route from Jorvik to Dublin, the nexus of trade and communication at the heart of Olaf's kingdom, spanning both sides of the Irish Sea. In 941, however, in one of the most fortuitous yet little-known moments in English history, and one with no elaborations whatsoever, Olaf Guthfridsson, most successful of all Vikings in Britain during this period, slips out of the historical record. Olaf was succeeded by his cousin, Olaf Citrixson, a son of the sea king Sitric, and the last great king of the Uyamer, to wield significant power in Britain. Though, for the time being, the tables had turned on the Irish Vikings. Once more, the death of a king led to the dissolution of regnal power. Edmund had learned a thing or two from his humiliation at Olaf's hands, and he wasn't about to let it happen again. By 946, the five boroughs and Northumbria were firmly back in the hands of the English. Yet, the story wasn't over yet. War would rage for decades to come between Anglo-Saxons and Scandinavians for control of Northumbria. Fresh out of the icy wastes of the north, a new contender faced his gaze towards the fertile lands of Britain. Gone was the age of the Irish Vikings. Now had come the time of one of the most famous sea marauders of them all, a throwback to the days of the great heathen army. Now was the time of Eric Bloodaxe. Hey guys, thanks for watching. Just a quick heads up for you all that you can now find all of my work ad-free in audio form over on the History Time podcast. Just search History Time wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you really like it, please consider leaving a review. Thanks for watching and I'll see you on the next one.